It is good to be in the house of God. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn to that scripture, Romans chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 9. I want to read our text and then we'll go back and get into the context a little bit. Um, just reminders kind of where we've been in chapters 1 and 2 in the beginning of chapter 3. But let's first read our text in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18. What then are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they ha have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, even before we go back and get into our context, that this isn't one of those passages that when you read it, you just say, oh, wow, I'm so excited to unpack this passage this morning and, and hear what God has to say about this passage of Scripture and this topic. So the title of the message is All Under Sin. And what this really is, is the conclusion, Paul is beginning to conclude what he's been working on pretty much in the whole first part of the book of Romans. He's gone through different people groups and, and talked about how they're all sinners and, and where they stand before God. And now he's going to wrap this up. And so we do have that phrase in verse 9 that they are all under sin. So the title of the message is All Under Sin. But really when he began this was all the way back in chapter 1. If you remember chapter 1 verse 18 he says that the wrath of God is abiding on those that dwell in unrighteousness, those who are unrighteous, those who are sinners. And we, we studied that passage from 18 to the end of that chapter where Paul goes through and just really makes an indictment against the Gentiles. So that's the section where he really shows that the Gentiles have gone, gone away. They have, they have, uh, they're unrighteous, and he goes through all the lists of things. Um, we looked at the end of chapter 1, Paul indicts and condemns the Gentiles. He said they hold the truth in unrighteousness. They change the glory of God into an image made like to corruptible man and beasts who God gave over to uncleanness, vile affections, and a reprobate mind. So that's quite, quite the scathing indictment there of the Gentiles. And in case you're wondering, well, who's the Gentile? The Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew. So that's a lot of people that are included in that section. Then in chapter 2, Paul began by warning those that judge, pointing to the true judgment of God that is coming. So basically what he says there in the beginning of chapter 2 is, so all you Jews that have really been enjoying me talking about the Gentiles and how much of a sinner they are, be careful how you judge because there's a true judgment that's coming and you're sinners as well. So he then spends time in chapter 2 showing that even 
the Jewish people, even those uh, who were the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, uh, that they were also under sin. So that's what he spends the rest of chapter 2 dealing with and the beginning of chapter 3 is that uh, they, they are also sinners, even though they do have the advantage. He said there is, in the beginning of chapter 3, he does say they do have one advantage, which is they had the word of God. But then he says, basically, that advantage that you have, that word of God, what that does is it just shows that you're a sinner, <laughs> that you cannot. So you have the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the Mosaical Law. They had all the things that God had given to them, and yet they weren't able to keep them. They could not keep the law. So he said that's just really part of the indictment against you. Was it an advantage? Yes, but it also points to that um, which, which shows that you are sinners. So that's how he begins chapter 3. And I do want to mention this argument that he makes in the beginning of chapter 3. I, I think it's somewhat important, but I didn't really want to base our whole message on this. So so we're going to kind of just give a real brief summary of verses 1 through 8, and then we'll jump in in verse 9. And, and really, he kind of gets to the heart of his argument in those first verses in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who take to taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory... Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So what's the basic gist? There's really a lot more to it than this, but I'm going to summarize it real quickly here. What he's saying is the fact that we are sinners and that many times God can even through those things bring about the good that he wants in the end, that doesn't mean that we're justified in our sin. We are still guilty before God for the sins that we commit. And so that does not make God unrighteous. And so the, the easy one to show would be in the sense of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Uh, God promised them, right? He said the promise was to them. But then Paul has said in chapter 2, some of them are not really Jews. Even though they were Jews of the flesh, they were not Jews spiritually. And so does that make God unrighteous? He says, God forbid. Uh, you just misunderstood that. So that's not the truth at all. So that's really kind of the argument that he makes. And then he jumps into verse 9. So that's where we want to focus on is in verse 9. So now that we've read our text, you understand this is kind of the culmination of this whole argument. Paul is dealing with sin and how we're all under sin. Then he says, what then are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So point number one this morning is all are under sin. All. Now that's a big word because all means all. <laughs> Every single human being is under sin. We are, we're coming to the end of this great indictment of the human race. It began all the way back in Romans 1.18 and the whole section of the letter up through this text is to show that people everywhere are under the power of sin and cannot be reconciled to God apart from the righteousness that God gives to his children through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. And, and before I go any further, let me go ahead and say that. You remember when we, when we talked about Romans 1, 16 and 17, I told you that's basically Paul's thesis statement for really the entire book of Romans is, is verse uh, 
Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God and to salvation because it's the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith. So he's dealing with that. He says there's a righteousness of God that's revealed from faith to faith. But now he's saying in this whole section, you don't have your own righteousness. Your righteousness is, is nothing. It, there, you don't have any righteousness. You are under sin. And so for us to be saved, we must then depend on an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. That's, that's the, the thesis. That's the premise. And so Paul has spent two and a half chapters. You think it's an important topic? You think that it's probably important that we understand that we're sinners? That's a big part of the gospel message. And so Paul has taken a long time to show that all people are under sin, both Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles under the power of sin. So that means not just sinning occasionally. Uh, that's not what that means. Well, I'm a sinner. Well, you know, some people say, well, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, I sin occasionally and, you know, I know. But, I, but overall, I'm a pretty good person. But I know that, you know, in the deep, dark corner somewhere, I'm a sinner. That's not what Paul's message is. We are enslaved to sin. Under sin has an important Meaning. So one of the most important truths that needs to be held up to the world today is that all human beings, even though they are created in God's image, are corrupted by the power of sin. We are not morally good by nature, right? We're not morally good by nature. It's been mentioned this morning what's happened in the Middle East. You know what's causing all of that? Evil and sin. Uh, that, that is some of the atrocities that you've heard, and we say, how could that be possible? How could someone do that? Just go into someone's home and murder their children. How can that be possible? Well, let me tell you, other than the grace of God, even if you're not one of God's elect, there's a restraining grace of God over this whole globe. There's a common grace that restrains, or we would, we would sink to the lowest common denominator. And this place would be a horrible place to live because we are under the power of sin. We are not morally good by nature. You know, you've heard people say that. Well, I think all people innately are, are good. No, they're not. Uh, we're morally bad by nature. And in Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says we are by nature the children of wrath. So it is, it is in our nature. We are born with it and we are under sin from our birth. By nature, the children of wrath, the attitudes, the thoughts, the actions uh, all of those things that we do deserve the wrath of God. Those things come to us by nature. In Colossians 3, 6, we are called the children of disobedience. The children of disobedience. Well, what does that phrase really mean? Well, you could unpack it this way. We are so disposed to disobedience against God that it's as, as though disobedience is our parents, right? That's... That's pretty tough. You know, we say sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A lot of times the kids mimic the actions of the parents. Well, we are the children of disobedience. Disobedience is our father. We don't just do sins. We are sinful. That's the big difference. So when we said we are under sin, and I said, you know, some people say, well, I know that I'm not perfect, and, and there's some sin in my life, especially if you were to put me under the microscope. You don't need a microscope. Okay, you don't need a microscope. You are, if you are under sin, then it's not just that we do sins, we are sinful. We are under sin. Sin is a master that reigns over us and in us. And now I love this quote, and, and y'all know I quote him a lot, but man, he just has a way with words sometimes. 
But John Piper, John Piper said it this way, We are not innocent victims of sin. We are co-conspirators with sin against God. Whew, that's an indictment. All right, so it's not poor pitiful me. I'm just the victim here. And, and yes, I sin, but it's really not my fault. No, it, when you are in your natural state, you are a rebel against God. It is not that sin happens to you. It is that you want to sin, that, that it is a part of you. We are not innocent victims of sin. We are co-conspirators with sin against God. Now, I've already kind of mentioned this, but this is not really a popular message, and understandably so. Um, it's, it's probably about the same as if you go to the doctor's office and you're just going in for a routine visit and, you know, you show up to the doctor's office and everything's fine and then they do a few tests and they walk back in that room and they say, we got bad news, you got cancer. That'd be a bad morning, wouldn't it? be a bad day. Uh, well, part of, the gospel is, the part of the gospel message is, you know, we got dressed up, we came to church this morning, you're, you're hoping to enjoy a good day and, and I think we can and we'll get there. <laughs> But part of the message is you have cancer. Sin is a part of the gospel message. It's an unpopular part, but it's, that doesn't mean that it's not important. You know, you wouldn't want your doctor to come in and say, everything's fine. Just go on. You know, you're good. When you're not, you would want him to say, hey, we found something, and, we're, and here's what we're going to do about it. You would want there uh, to be truth and honesty in it. So to be honest to the gospel message, we must say what Paul says here, that we are all under sin it's an essential part of that message and it's difficult for us to swallow and it's hard for us to hear but Paul will not stop here he'll go on in the book of Romans to unpack the truths of how someone who is lost in sin can be justified by faith and redeemed to God through the work of the Holy Spirit and because of the work of God the Son that's what the whole book of Romans and and really what Christianity and the Bible are all about so really the whole Bible message is we are sinners. And then how, how can we be rebels against God, enemies of God, and be reconciled to him? How can that happen? Well, that's really what the Bible is all about. My good friend and, and a co-worker of mine, um, she's working on her doctorate in biblical counseling, and, and she was working on this kind of this very issue the other day. And the, she has to write about how the Old Testament points to Christ. And, and really the question that she was asked to answer is a little more specific than that. Should we view the Old Testament as separate in just a history lesson, or does it directly point to Christ? And, and does it have bearing on the New Testament church? And the answer to that is yes, the whole Bible points to Christ. And yes, the Old and New Testament are both the unfolding of the history of redemption that's what the whole bible is about when you go back to the old testament it reveals that we are sinners in fact the root of what we're talking about today is found in the book of genesis right the fact that we're all under sin for us to really understand that we have to go all the way back to the book of genesis and that text that we hate to read uh, you know, you're, you're reading in Genesis and your mind is just blown away. You're the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's amazing, right? And then you go through the seven days of creation. Awesome. And then, I mean, can you think about it for a minute that, that Adam and Eve walked with God? They had, they had fellowship with God himself. There was, there was not sin yet. And they actually had fellowship with God. I think we forget about that sometimes because we know what's coming so quick. But then we get to the text where that fateful conversation 
between Eve and the serpent, and the serpent said, you know, God doesn't want you to be like him. There's something you're missing out on. And so the fall happens. Adam willingly uh, partakes, and, and the fall of man has happened. We are lost and dead in trespasses and in sin. Man died, mankind died that day, spiritually. And ever since then, we are all under sin. So the roots of this go all the way back to the beginning. All this bad news about our true condition, but there is a remedy. And, and we need to really understand this before we can get to that remedy. I can rejoice in the truth that I can do nothing to earn my salvation if I really understand the truth of what it means to be under sin. So this, this doctrine, this understanding that we are all under sin and what that actually means for our life will really set up everything else that you need to understand and believe about redemption. If you don't understand this, then you're going to get a lot of the rest of it wrong. If you don't really understand that you've lost ability, that you've lost anything that you can bring to the table, then you will really get the rest of that story a little bit off. You'll get it wrong. We bring no spark of goodness, no power of will, no other good thing to the table that can redeem me from this lost state of being under sin and my rebellion against a holy God. And you say, well, why is my helplessness and inability good news? Well, the answer to that is because if that's true, then that means salvation is all of the Lord. And we can trust in that. Whereas if you have to bring something to the table, then your eternal salvation depends on you. If any single part of it depends on you, then it all depends on you. And so I, I'm very thankful for the message that I have lost all ability. I've lost all anything that I can bring to the table. That is actually a comforting doctrine in that sense that salvation is all of the Lord. But we must understand this first before we get to the other. So the remedy, namely the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith, comes after we understand that we are all under sin. So that's where Paul begins in this letter of Romans. Not one is righteous, he says. Paul supports verse 9 and the sinfulness of all men from the Old Testament in several quotations. He says in verse 9 that, that Jews are, are not really any better off before God than others, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Now, that's not going to go over well with the Jews. They're, they're not going to appreciate Paul's message. They really did feel like that there was a difference between them and the Gentiles. And so they're not going to easily accept what Paul is writing here. So he goes to the Old Testament scriptures to show that what he's saying is the truth. And you can see this as kind of a summary statement of things that he has said before. We have before proved is what he says or we have before in some translations we have before charged is what he actually says uh, that the meaning of that word can be interpreted that way too this is what he has been proving from verse chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to 3 8 so the case has been made as far as as far as Paul's concerned he said the case has been made nevertheless let me give you one last summary argument from the Old Testament and that's where we start in verse 10 as it is written and it goes all the way down through verse 18, and it's, it's a scathing indictment. He quotes six different Old Testament uh, scriptures in this section to support his summary, 
in verse 9 that all Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And, and we're just going to look at one as an example. I'm not going to go through all six. But I do want to look at one as an example so you can understand that this is Paul quoting the Old Testament as it is written. So he says in verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So if we go to Psalms 14, 1 through 3, you may want to write that down. Psalms 14, 1 through 3, we read, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Does that sound pretty familiar? <laughs> That's what Paul's quoting. So when the Jews start to get upset at Paul for making this argument, he says, I'm quoting the very scriptures that you claim that you say are the word of God. So let's unpack some of those statements that Paul makes here because they're, they're really important for us to understand what he means when he says we're under sin. So first he says there are none righteous. The requirement for you is to be like a holy God. So to be righteous, you must be like a holy God. The, the standard is holiness, perfection. One sin puts us at enmity with God. And so he says there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one without sin. There is not anyone who has kept all the law perfectly. We, we cannot bring our righteousness before God. In fact, what does the Old Testament say about that? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's not something that you want to bring into the presence of a thrice holy God. So we do not have our own righteousness. There are none righteous. So I think we all understand that. I'm not going to spend too much time on this section. But no, there are none who in and of themselves in their natural state have a righteousness that will be accepted by God. I think that's the easiest way for us to understand that. You cannot bring your righteousness to God and be saved. Now secondly, he says there's none that understand. None understands. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. Um, let's go to that text. Let's just go and read it. I was going to try to quote it, but I might get a few words off. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us, unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? So you cannot, in your natural state, remember that's what we're talking about a lot this morning, so let's make that clear. Without the Spirit of God acting on you, you do not have spiritual understanding. You cannot understand the gospel. It's the same message that Christ said to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus came to him and he said, I want to know, about all, of, I want to know what's going on. I want, I want you to tell me what's going on. What did Jesus say? You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. There has to be a work that happens outside of you. The Spirit has to come in and give you spiritual life 
for you to have spiritual understanding. So in our text back in Romans, what Paul is saying is that there are none that naturally in their natural state have understanding. Um, that's, you know, that's once again, that's hard for us to hear. There is none that understandeth. Then he says, there's none that seeketh after God. So none seeks. This is another statement that he makes. None seeks after God. No one in their natural lost condition is seeking after God. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is one of those things that people who understand what we believe about soteriology, this is a question I get all the time. So what about if you believe in election and you believe in limited atonement and you believe in all the things that you believe in, what about that poor person who really is seeking after God, but they're not elect and, and they're not part of the, the chosen people? What, what about that person? Well, you know what the answer to that is? That person doesn't exist because no one in their natural state is seeking after God. They are the enemy of God. They are not seeking him. If they're seeking him, it's because the spirit has done a work in their life. And then he, I believe, my personal belief is he's going to bring that to fruition in their life and they're going to repent and believe. That's what I believe. So there are none that seeks after God. That's a strong statement. No one in their natural lost condition is seeking after God. God must draw them to himself. John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's a relatively simple text to understand, okay? It is really not that difficult. No man can come to Christ except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So there is none that are seeking after God. Then he says, none doeth good. Total depravity, and, and we need to make this qualification. The doctrine of total depravity, you haven't heard me use that word very much today, but really that's what we're talking about in theological terms is total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're always as bad as a human can possibly be, right? Um, like we said, if that was the case, this would be an absolutely horrible place to live, okay, if that's the truth. If, if, if everyone that was not God's child was Adolf Hitler, okay, that's the easy way to say that, or Charles Manson, or some, you think of the most evil person that you can think of uh, in history, you know, some of these really, really bad characters. Um, total depravity doesn't mean that we're always as bad as a human can possibly be. However, it does mean that there are none that doeth good. So you in your natural state are incapable of doing good, coming to Christ. There's none that seeks. There's none that understands. You can't understand the scriptures. All of those things that he has said are true. The deeds done apart from faith in God and in obedience to God are really sin. That's what the Bible teaches. So anything that is apart from faith in God, you know, some of these guys that are probably not children of God that are super rich and you know, they have a lot of power and influence. They do good things, right? I mean, and from our human perspective, if they buy a water desalinization plant in Africa so people can drink good, clean water, we don't see that as evil, right? That's a good thing. That doesn't mean that they're okay with God or that that's a good work that they can bring before God because it's not done out of a heart that has reverence and obedience to God who is, who is their Lord and master. So, so that's how we have to understand that there are none that doeth good. Now, to sum all of that up, we are all 
under sin. We've unpacked a little bit about what that looks like. So that's how, that's just the fact that we're all under sin. Now, Paul, back in our text, he's going to go a little bit deeper and he's going to start to describe what that looks like. He's going to kind of unpack that a little bit and we want to look at that. So point number two is living under sin. Number one, we said, was all or under sin. Now, number two, or second point, is living, quote, under sin. Paul says that we're all under sin. So how are we living under sin? Paul's going to describe the state of being under sin in these verses. So what can we learn about sin and about ourselves and even about the gospel from the way that Paul talks about sin in these verses. There's three aspects of existing under sin. The first one is broken fellowship with God. Broken fellowship with God. Being under sin is first and foremost a ruined relationship with God. Not, not first a ruined relationship with people. So we need to understand it in this way. So here's what we mean by that. It's, it's going to have impacts on the whole life, but we need to, we need to understand, and Paul was very, he, he began and end, ended with this, and we're going to see that in a minute. But the thing that we need to keep in our minds mostly is that that is a broken fellowship with God. When we're under sin, that means we do not have fellowship with God. In the Garden of Eden, as we've already mentioned, Adam and Eve, they had fellowship with God. But then... That passage that we all hate, the fall, Adam and Eve were ejected from the Garden of Eden and sin passed on all future generations. And fellowship with God in that way was broken at that moment. So verses 10 through 18 begin and end with this point that we have broken fellowship with God. There is none righteous, no not one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. So all that has to do with our relationship with God. And then he ends at the very end in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So he begins and ends that whole section where he's describing this with our relationship with God. And then everything in between that, those verses have to do with the meaning of sin for human relationships. But at the beginning and the end, the bookmarks on the end is about our relationship with God. So fix this firmly in your mind. Sin is mainly a condition of rebellion against God, not mainly a condition of doing bad things to other people. I think when we understand sin in that way, it really helps us to, to get a grasp of what it means to be under sin. Sin is mainly a condition of rebellion against God. Now, it certainly does result in doing bad things to other people that affect other people. <coughs> Our sin certainly does affect those around us. But first and foremost, we need to understand it as sin that is rebellion against the Creator God. Now, a great text for this is in Psalm 51. I'm sure you're very familiar with that passage of Scripture. Psalm 51, if you remember, David, who was described as a man after God's own heart, he lusted after a beautiful woman when he should have been at war. He should have been doing what God had for him to do, and instead he was lusting after a beautiful woman. He committed adultery. And then he committed murder to cover up the adultery. So now the truth is those sins had major effects on all the people in David's life. I mean, if you go back and read David's life, that clearly had an effect 
on not just David, but on all of his family and on the kingdom and, and just had ripple effects that went all out through Israel. That's the truth. But when David, the consequences for David's sin, that they had these big ripple effects, but in Psalm 51.4, this is what David says about it. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. So you see, you know, maybe Uriah, he might have had a different opinion of that, right? When David said, against thee only, Uriah might have said, no, David sinned against me too. He stole my wife and then he had me murdered to cover it up. There, there was sins against other people, but David's mindset was, I have sinned against a holy God. And that's what I mean by our primary mindset about sin doesn't need to be, well, it's when I do bad things and other people are affected. Our sin is against God, a holy God who demands holiness from us, and we, we cannot bring that righteousness to the table. So that's where Paul, he's, he's wanting our minds to focus in on that first and foremost. And that, that's why it's so sad and, and really not good when people argue that, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, and that's why I don't go to church, because I, I think in the end, you know, when all things are weighed, <laughs> you know, this whole balance idea of, of salvation that we're going to get to the end of our life, and as long as you've been a pretty good fella, you know, and you've given some money to some charities, and, and you've tried to live a good life, and maybe you don't um, cuss all the time, and you don't steal, and you, you're, you're fair on your taxes, and, and you didn't kill anybody, and you don't lie very often, um, you know, maybe, maybe that in the end, the balance is going to come out right, and I, and I think I'm going to be okay. Well, the answer to that is you are under sin, and one sin is enough to put God to wrath on you. So that balance is not going to work in your favor. He says our primary mindset needs to be that when we talk about sin, it's not what we're doing to other people. It's that we are sinners before a holy God. So when we say all these other things about what we're doing, you know, it's not a mark of virtue to do nice things to people while yet having no love or reverence or fear of God. Sin is first and foremost a rebellion against God, and that rebellion has resulted in a darkened mind that suppresses the truth and does not understand God. So the mind that is under sin does not seek God <coughs> and does not know God or fear God in the way that it should. It doesn't matter what we do for other people if we treat the king of the universe with such disdain. That, that we don't recognize him for who he is. It doesn't matter then how we treat other people. So then what does that truth do to your soteriology? That's a big word. It just means how you believe that you're saved or how you believe people get saved. It's the doctrines of salvation. So what does that truth do to your soteriology? How does it affect your feelings about things like the seeker-sensitive movement among the modern church? And all the questions that we will get into as Paul continues to unfold the truths of the gospel in this letter to the Romans. Well, like I said, it should inform all other doctrines then. Because if we are totally depraved, then that means uh, if we are under sin, would be another way to say that. If we are truly under sin and incapable and, and cannot bring anything to the table, then there's a certain way that we must approach to God. And that means God must act on us first. So that really changes a lot of our doctrines as we move forward 
So first and foremost, it's a, it's a ruined relationship with God or broken fellowship with God. Secondly, it does ruin our relationships with other people. So there are broken relationships. Kind of subsection number two of this living under sin is that we have broken relationships with people. Being under sin means that our relations with people are ruined. Even though God's common grace can restrain us, as we've talked about, from treating people maybe, you know, the worst that we possibly could. In verses 13 and 14, Paul describes the way <coughs> sin ruins our words. And, and then he describes uh, the way sin ruins our actions, our tongue, our lips, our mouth, what we say, what we do. Graves, in verse 13 and 14, they have to do with death, and, and venom is a poison that has to do with death. And he, he uses those things to describe what it's like um, living under sin. The mouth was meant to give life, and yet sin turns it into a place of poison and death. And then in verses 15 through 17, being under sin is, is not a way of speaking, but also a way of acting. This is what happens when God is not sought or known or reverent. So we have to look at it this way, and this is Paul's argument. He says, because we're rebels against God, because the main thing is, is that we have a, a um, broken fellowship with God, then that breaks our relationships here. So it's really, there is a hierarchy in being under sin. It's because of our broken fellowship with God, then that breaks our relationships that God has designed and made, those things are not then the way that God designed and made them to be. So we can clearly see in our own lives the effects of sin on our relationships, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time on that one, right? I mean, do you think sin affects your interpersonal relationships? Um, if you're not married yet, just wait. <laughs> just, uh, and that's not an indictment against my wife, it's, it's me. Try to live with someone and, and tell me that sin doesn't have an effect on personal relationships. Try to be a parent. You know, we, we talk about the kids a lot. Oh, man, sin's evident. Just try to raise a kid. Try to parent. Try to be a parent. We had a, um, a guest speaker Thursday night uh, that came and spoke to the parents at TCPS about raising children and having a spiritual home and all of those kinds of things. And he had six different verses and kind of six different things that parents could focus on. But the funny part was on every single one of them, he said, you know what it's really about? You've got to be a model. You've got to model these things. They've got to see that you love Jesus. They've got to see that you reverence the word. They've got to see that you want to go to church. They've got to see that when you say these things, you mean it because you're living it yourself. And, you know, all of us that were adults in the rooms are just sitting there going, oh, you know, just, I mean, getting wounded because we know sin affects our interpersonal relationships we as parents try and we strive but it's it's marred with sin so it's because of our broken relationship with god that then that affects and it breaks our uh, our relationships in an interpersonal way as well so we can all clearly see this sin affects all these areas and and more so how do we respond then to this bad news that we are all under sin that we're all under sin, and that Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. All of, these, all of these different things that Paul has said, how do we respond to that? I mean, what can we say about that? Then what's the message that comes out of that? Because that's, that's pretty depressing. If I were to just walk out of the stand right now, that would, 
That would not be really a happy thing to have to think about for this whole week. Well, the answer is there is a way that we respond to that bad news. And the, and the way that is given in Scripture to respond to that is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to repent of our sins. That's a part of the gospel. We're to repent of our sins and believe in Christ. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. Repent, turn from sin, turn to Christ for a righteousness that you need but you cannot produce. But what we understand is that we can't even do that on our own. That's really what Paul's message is. When he says there's none that seeks God, that's really what he's saying. Um, you cannot do that. You can't even repent and come to Christ in your own strength. So the message then is, in closing, the message then is, how, how do we respond to this message that we are all under sin? We look to Christ, holy, not in part, but we look holy to Christ because we have nothing to bring. We have nothing that we can do. We have no ability in and of ourselves. So finally, if this is who we really are by nature, and that's what Paul says, then people who are under sin, uh, then, and therefore we're under the wrath of God, and that's not the best news in the world, then the rest of the book of Romans is going to unpack how God, in his great mercy, has provided a substitute for you so that he has satisfied the wrath of God and he's taken away your sins and your sinful nature and the power and the penalty of sin. He's taken all of that away because we have no righteousness to bring, but Christ then gives us his righteousness. So it's not just that because we're under sin, he has to take that away. He also clothes us in his righteousness. Now, I submit to you that is the simplicity of the gospel. We know there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it. There's a, and, and it's good to know all of those things. But in a very simple way, we need to understand that we're all under sin, that you do not have the ability to do anything about that on your own. You must come to Christ. You must repent and believe and learn of me. Repent and believe and learn of me. John 6 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's a, that's a very comforting verse to me. That if I'm one of God's, he's going to draw, he's going to call me to himself, and I'm going to come, I shall come to him, and that he will in no wise cast out. The same verse in John 6 that we've already read, No man can come to the Father except which has sent me, except my Father which is in heaven draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. What about this text, the, the very words of Christ? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know there's an order in that text? He says, come to me if you're heavy laden. Well, if you really understand what Paul said this morning and you've never repented of your sins and confessed Christ, then you ought to be heavy laden. You ought to understand that the weight of the guilt of your sin should be, should be on you. And, and the Spirit of God does that. He convicts us of our sins. And the law convicts us of our sins. It, it is the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. So we're heavy laden. And he says, you come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. you he takes that burden away, but there is a yoke that we take on, but it's, it's easy. 
that burden is light, and we learn of him then. So, we, so if you're waiting for God for your, to clean yourself up and get everything right, and then I'm going to come to Christ, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you come as you are, you repent of your sins, and you follow Christ, and then you learn of me. And then he says that burden is light. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So if you feel the weight of your lost and sinful condition before a holy God, you're convicted of your sins, and that is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. So you can't try to first deal with your burden yourself and then come to Christ when you're in a better condition. Come to Christ, learn of him, and find rest for your soul. Hope those things have been a blessing to you this morning. We are going to uh, sing number 124, and we are going to have...